Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with Nachi Gupta, we'll be taking you through the November 2017 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Management of Inflammatory Bowel Disease Flares in the Emergency Department. Before we begin, I'd like to give a quick thanks to all the listeners who have stopped by the EB Medicine booth so far at ASAP. We got a lot of positive feedback and hope to make some creative changes in the coming episodes. And don't forget, you can always submit feedback at any point by emailing us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net. You can also tweet at us at at ebmedicine. Throughout this episode, you'll hear some sounds. These sounds are used to indicate that the answer to a CME question is coming up. That's right. Each article has a few CME questions, 10 to be exact, at the end. After listening, or even during listening, make sure to head over to get your CME credit. Let's get going with this month's topic, IBD. Although certainly not as huge a topic as last month, IBD is definitely something we all see, and there are some important intricacies that are worth reviewing. I know this is something that you and I have seen hundreds of times throughout residency. Agree, but we're a bit biased, practicing emergency medicine at the same institution where Burl Bernard Crone did a significant amount of his research in IBD. That's fair. In any case, this month's issue was authored by Drs. Berg and Rico Bonney of the University of California, San Francisco, Fresno, and was edited by Dr. Lee of the University of Wisconsin and Dr. Rolene of North Memorial Health in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. Let's begin. When we say IBD, we're really referring to Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Crohn's disease is a transmural process that affects the entire alimentary tract from the mouth to the anus. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, affects the colon's mucosal lining. It has been estimated that upwards of 1.4 million people in North America and Europe have IBD. In the U.S. alone, in 2004, there were 1.1 million ambulatory care visits for Crohn's disease and another 716,000 for ulcerative colitis. This amounts to a financial burden of at least $31 billion. Those are remarkably high numbers, but you just cited ambulatory care and not emergency department visits. There's an important distinction there. That's a great segue into the scope of this review. Although they reviewed a number of articles, relatively few, only two actually, came from the emergency medicine literature. To supplement, they also reviewed a number of guidelines in various GI and IBD patient-centered websites because there was lots of useful information to be gleaned there. Let's discuss the etiology and pathophysiology. IBD is multifactorial. It's related to the patient's genome, environmental factors, alterations in intestinal microbiota, and the mucosal immune system. A less rich and diverse microbiota and a thinner intestinal mucosal layer, combined with environmental factors, lead to a compromised barrier in dysregulated immune response. Eventually, you get an IgG antibody against an epithelial antigen in the colon as well as elsewhere. In terms of genes, at least 163 IBD-associated gene variants have been discovered. Although gene number does correlate with risk, gene presence only accounts for 25% of cases. And lastly, in terms of the environment, smoking, gut microbiota, a westernized diet which is high in fat and sugar, and early antibiotic exposure are all linked to IBD. Although I just mentioned that Crohn's disease causes transmural inflammation of the intestinal wall anywhere throughout the GI tract, about 70% of patients have terminal ileal disease, with 55% experiencing inflammation of both the colon and the terminal ileum. Given the diffuse GI tract involvement, Crohn's disease has a heterogeneous disease phenotype which can present in a variety of ways. Common manifestations include chronic diarrhea, abdominal pain and weight loss due to malabsorption and vitamin deficiencies. With disease focused in the small bowel, patients often present with obstruction, colicky abdominal pain, nausea, and loose stools. Hematochesia, diarrhea, and mucopurulent discharge are associated with colonic involvement. If Crohn's disease is left untreated, the transmural disease can lead to strictures, fistulas, and abscesses. These represent some of the most dramatic IBD presentations to the ED. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, affects just the rectum and the colon. 
As such, the classic presentation is relapsing and remitting bloody diarrhea with or without mucus. With isolated proctitis, patients may also have hematochesia, fecal urgency, and even severe constipation. Acute severe complications of ulcerative colitis include severe bleeding, fulminant colitis, toxic megacolon, and in rare cases, strictures. And beware of a third disease entity that we haven't mentioned yet. That's indeterminate colitis, which shares features of both UC and Crohn's disease. Let's move on to the extra-intestinal manifestations of IBD. Table 1 on page 3 outlines an exhaustive list, but let's just talk about some of the major ones here. First, we have nephrolithiasis. For many reasons, IBD patients are prone to stone formation. Stones are often masked by the typical IBD pain, and the diagnosis is easy to miss. Keep in mind, though, that IBD patients are more likely to present with stone-related sepsis and end-organ failure, so this is certainly something to keep in your differential while avoiding early diagnostic closure. Next, we have gallbladder disease. One recent meta-analysis found a significantly higher prevalence of gallbladder disease in those with IBD versus those without. Again, this can easily be masked by other GI symptoms. Due to malabsorption, IBD patients have an increased prevalence of osteoporosis and osteopenia, with only a modestly increased fracture risk. Of serious concern in the ED, IBD patients also have an increased risk of ischemic heart disease. Interestingly, there's no corresponding increase in their cardiovascular mortality. That's odd. I wonder what explains that. You would think that ischemic heart disease would obviously correspond to increases in mortality. Perhaps IBD patients are just more plugged into healthcare systems than others? That may be the reason, or perhaps the link to mortality hasn't been fully appreciated yet. Moving on, next we have the most common hepatobiliary extraintestinal manifestation of IBD, primary sclerosing cholangitis. This is found in approximately 5% of IBD patients, and it's more common in those with UC than those with Crohn's disease. Sadly, it portends a worse survival. The last, and in my opinion, most important extraintestinal manifestation is thromboembolic disease. Patients with IBD have increased risk of thromboembolic events, including DVT, PE, ischemic heart disease, and mesenteric ischemia. With real risks of intestinal bleeding, as you can imagine, this makes for quite the clinical conundrum. This is an important opportunity for interdisciplinary management, which will be a theme in the treatment section in a few minutes. So I think that's a solid background for now. Let's move on to the differential. As you probably expected, the differential in someone with abdominal pain with IBD does not vary greatly from those without it. The complete list is printed on page 6 in Table 2. Always maintain a high index of suspicion for the most severe complications, such as toxic megacolon, small bowel obstruction, rectal abscesses, and fistulas. Although we haven't really touched on it yet, many patients with IBD are immunocompromised, so they are at risk for all the typical GI bugs, as well as C. diff and cytomegalovirus. I think we'll defer to the table for the rest of the differential, as most of the listeners are probably pretty familiar with it. Let's move on to pre-hospital care. Acutely ill IBD patients can present with varying degrees of dehydration. They may even be septic or in shock. Patients should be transported quickly with large caliber IV access and fluid resuscitation in process. Pain is a major concern, so make sure to use your pain medicine liberally. If an IV line hasn't been established, consider intranasal analgesia. And if you anticipate a longer transport time, remember that patients with flares often have frequent large bloody bowel movements. Make sure to line the stretcher with absorbent pads for the patient's benefit and for your own safety. This is also a time when discussing transport destination with the patient and medical control may be appropriate. Since patients with severe disease often have extensive GI and surgical past medical history, bringing the patient to the appropriate hospital may be worth a few extra minutes on the road or in the air. Excellent points. Now that the patient has arrived in the ED, what do we want to look for in history and physical exam? The main focus of your exam should be on identifying acute, life-threatening surgical or infectious processes. Patients will likely complain of worsening intermittent diarrhea with or without blood and mucus. Other common symptoms include fever, malaise, unintentional weight loss, and tenesmus. On exam, you will almost certainly note abdominal tenderness, either focal or generalized. 
Although a detailed physical exam is critical, IBD is one condition where differentiating a disease flare from a disease complication is difficult, especially in the setting of immunosuppression, which blunts the body's normal responses. Which is where labs and imaging come in. While labs alone are not diagnostic, they certainly help complete the clinical picture. There's class 1 evidence for obtaining a CBC, CMP, and a lipase. The CBC offers lots of information. Leukocytosis, anemia, thrombocytosis, all of these are common in IBD patients. The CMP may reveal renal or hepatic injury secondary to either sepsis or as a medication side effect. Hypoalbuminemia also helps determine the degree of malnutrition. Speaking of sepsis, don't forget about a lactic acid level in the critically ill as well as blood cultures. Additionally, stool cultures and a C. diff toxin assay should be considered in those with persistent bloody diarrhea. What about the classic inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP? ESR, CRP, a major point of controversy in the ED. Thanks for putting this one on me. According to the clinical pathway algorithm on page 4, there's class 2 evidence supporting ESR and CRP testing. Okay, great. So class 2 evidence. That means it's safe and acceptable and probably useful. So I'm ordering them every time, right? Slow down. There's more to the story. There are a few things to keep in mind here. First, both inflammatory markers are more sensitive for Crohn's disease than ulcerative colitis. Secondly, CRP in particular is more sensitive than ESR for evaluating IBD patients. Thirdly, CRP also correlates better with clinical disease activity. But with all of that being said, a normal ESR and CRP don't rule out disease flares or complications. This leads the authors to their conclusion that neither is recommended on a routine basis. Hmm. So it's safe and probably useful, but we aren't recommending them routinely? We've said many times in the past, we're treating patients with an entire clinical picture, not just numbers from tests, especially when those tests are neither sensitive nor specific. We also don't work in a vacuum. This is something you'll want to flesh out with your GI colleagues and your institution. Well stated. Let's move on to our last test, fecal calprotectin. Fecal calprotectin is an extremely sensitive test for detecting colonic inflammation and correlates well with endoscopically confirmed disease. However, at this time, it's backed only by class 3 evidence. Let's continue with another potentially controversial topic, imaging. In a patient with known IBD, we turn to imaging to look for disease-related complications and pathology that require surgical intervention, like abscesses, fistulae, toxic megacolon, etc. We're not imaging with the sole goal of determining the source of their abdominal pain, as this would lead to tons of imaging only to be read as, quote, correlate clinically with the patient's known IBD. So the first step to determining who needs imaging is to determine the patient's disease phenotype, you must know the predominant disease location, small bowel, large bowel, perianal. You also need to know the typical pattern, penetrating, meaning fistulas and abscesses, fibrous tenotic, or inflammatory. This will tell you what complications you're looking for, which can guide your imaging decisions. The first imaging modality to discuss is CT. Since repeated CTs would result in an overwhelming amount of ionizing radiation, traditional CTs should be reserved only for those with concern for IBD-related surgical emergencies. CTE or CT enterography may also be used as it provides a better assessment of the bowel wall abnormalities and disease activity. CTE does require that the patient drink a huge amount of contrast, so this is rarely feasible in a sick ED patient and is typically reserved only for surveillance. And as always, when radiation is a concern, we turn to MRI and MR enterography. Unfortunately, the MR modalities also require drinking quite a lot of contrast. They also require an antiperistaltic medication, take a long time to complete, and are expensive. As you probably guessed, a limited resource that is time-consuming and costly is rarely indicated in the ED setting. While you yourself may not be ordering CTEs, MRIs, MREs, these are great tests to look back on in the patient's history to help determine their disease phenotype, as you just mentioned. That's an important point. The next test to discuss is ultrasound. 
While ultrasound may not be useful for evaluating much of the bowel, it definitely has a role for identifying and draining abscesses in the rectal and vaginal areas. And the last modality to discuss is endoscopy. While not typically done in the ED, in conjunction with the patient's gastroenterologist, there is good evidence to support the quote, admission and endoscopy approach. While we love to turn to our friends at MDCalc for an easy-to-use calculator to help guide or support our decisions, no prospectively validated clinical decision rules have been devised that reliably identify IBD patients for whom imaging may be unnecessary. Several investigators have attempted, but clinical judgment remains a standard for imaging decisions. Yeah, this area is probably ripe for more research, but for now, let's move on to treatment. Treatment for IBD can be broken down into the acute and chronic phases. In the chronic phase, the goal is maintenance and remission. While you rarely order these meds, you must be aware of them. The authors break treatment down into different disease entities and then medications, so we'll do the same. First up, we have IBD flares. IBD flares are usually marked by a combination of increased diarrheal output, bloody stools, urgency, cramping, bloating, fever, fatigue, and weight loss. Labs usually reveal an elevated white blood cell count, as well as an elevated ESR and CRP. And one caveat about fevers. Fevers may be due to a concomitant infection, abscess, bowel perforation, or toxic megacolon, or they may simply be due to the increased inflammatory response. Although historically Crohn's disease treatment was guided by symptoms, we now know that symptoms correlate poorly with underlying inflammation, and the new goal is, quote, deep remission, which is both symptom and endoscopic remission. For this reason, corticosteroids are the mainstay of treatment for IBD flares. Right, and this is definitely the time to get the patient's gastroenterologist or PCP involved. Similar to the imaging guidelines, there are no emergency medicine-based guidelines to direct IBD flare therapy. The American Gastroenterological Association does have a management pathway that's partially applicable to emergency physicians. That being said, getting the patient's outpatient team involved early would also be important if it's possible. While patients with flares may be safely discharged, likely on corticosteroids plus or minus some IV fluids while in the ED, many patients, especially those with Crohn's disease, will present with surgical pathologies. Let's differentiate surgical pathologies into those associated with Crohn's and those with ulcerative colitis. We'll start with Crohn's. Older literature suggests that up to 90% of patients with Crohn's disease will require surgery at some point in their disease. Thanks to new treatment approaches and biologic therapies, this percentage may be much lower now. As far as surgical pathologies go, in the small bowel, patients with Crohn's disease may have both acute and chronic obstructions. IV hydration, bowel rest, and symptom control are the mainstays of treatment. NG tubes should be reserved for only those who are actively vomiting. At least one retrospective study showed that NG tubes placed in the setting of small bowel obstructions without vomiting offered no benefit and were actually associated with harm and complications. Patients may also present with fistulas, either enteroenteric, enterovaginal, enterovesical, or enterocutaneous. While enteroenteric and enterocutaneous fistulas may be treated with a trial of medical management, enterovaginal and enterovesical will require surgery. Abscesses are also common, with 25% of patients with Crohn's disease developing an intra-abdominal abscess at one point or another. As interventional techniques become more robust, stay tuned for new literature elucidating who needs surgical versus interventional drainage. The last surgical pathology in the small bowel would be perforation and bleeding, which are often due to malignancy, which is pretty uncommon. Moving down the GI tract, next we meet the colon. Surgical interventions of colonic disease are usually required in those who have failed medical therapy, have dysplasia, cancer, toxic colitis, obstruction, or a fistula. Lastly, we hit the anorectal region. Anorectal involvement is common in those with Crohn's disease, with surgical complications including fissures, fistulas, and abscesses. Although the management approach tends to be more conservative, with increased fiber intake, bedside drainage, etc., these are cases where you definitely want to get your surgical colleagues involved early. Let's move on to ulcerative colitis. There are fewer surgical indications in ulcerative colitis as compared to Crohn's disease. 
It's worth noting that about 25% of patients with ulcerative colitis will undergo colectomy, but rarely for a surgical emergency. Dysplasia, malignancy, stricture, and medication side effects are much more common indications. Surgical emergencies in ulcerative colitis include toxic megacolon, fulminant colitis, perforation, and hemorrhage. Check out figure 3 on page 10 to see an x-ray of a toxic megacolon. Toxic megacolon is defined as non-obstructive colonic dilatation with systemic toxicity. It's a clinical diagnosis, but on an abdominal x-ray, you would expect to see the transverse colon dilate to at least 6 centimeters. Fulminant colitis is another rare but devastating surgical pathology. With fulminant colitis, patients will complain of frequent bloody bowel movements and severe pain. They will likely be febrile and tachycardic, with labs showing dehydration, anemia, leukocytosis, as well as hypoalbuminemia. All the surgical pathologies we've discussed should be treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics, such as ciprofloxacin and metronidazole, as well as fluid resuscitation and electrolyte replation. In conjunction with your GI and surgical colleagues, gastrointestinal decompression may also be needed. And many of these patients will be incredibly sick, so you might be going through your sepsis bundle and protocols as well. All right, that's enough surgery for today. Let's cover some of the medical therapies. We've said it dozens of times, but the first and least controversial medical therapy is fluid repletion. Most of these patients will present with at the very least mild to moderate dehydration. In terms of pain control, clearly opiates do a good job. However, they also slow gut motility, which may limit their utility. Low-dose ketamine has been studied as an adjunct therapy and is worth considering. Benzodiazepines can also be used to control tenesmus. Table 3 on page 11 has a comprehensive list of various agents used specifically in the treatment of IBD, along with their side effect profiles. We're going to try to hit the highlights here. Antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin and metronidazole should be used to treat infectious colitis. Corticosteroids are the first-line therapy for an acute IBD flare and should not be considered a maintenance therapy. Aminosalicylates, like sulfasalazine, are often used as a first-line IBD maintenance treatment and are not used as acute treatments. In fact, their use should be discontinued during a flare. Immunomodulators come in a variety of forms and include azathioprine, 6-mercaptopurine, methotrexate, and cyclosporin. Those are used in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis patients to induce remission and decrease symptoms. Similarly, TNF-alpha inhibitors can be used for the same goals and are often combined with other classes of medications. TNF-alpha inhibitors include infliximab, adalimumab, and golimumab. And finally, there are several new medications that have been recently used as rare alternatives, including natalizumab, fetolizumab, and ustekinumab. Many of these heavy hitters have extensive side effects that are worth looking up when patients present with atypical symptoms. Okay, we're in the home stretch. Although long-term implications of disease is not something we typically discuss in the ED, let's spend a few seconds on it here. Given the unclear data, at the very least, we should follow the guidelines of the American Gastroenterological Association and remind patients of the importance of surveillance colonoscopy, which may be associated with a moderate reduction of colorectal carcinoma in those with extensive disease. Another huge element to discuss are the psychosocial effects, which are tremendous. Roughly 25% of teens with IBD are depressed. In all comers with IBD, the rate of anxiety and depression is about 20%, which is nearly twice that of their healthy counterparts. That's awful. Adding insult to injury, many females also suffer from impaired body image and sexuality, altered menstruation, and reduced fertility. Make sure not to ignore the psychosocial aspects of your patient's disease. There are lots of resources which you can quickly reference for support, such as the IBD University and Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which can be found at ibdu.org and ccfa.org, respectively. The only special population to discuss this month would be the kids. Pediatric emergency medicine practice covered this extensively back in July of 2014. You can find the review at www.ebmedicine.net slash pedibd. 
A couple of key highlights from the pediatric review include the following. First, 20 to 40% of IBD patients have their disease diagnosed in childhood, with the peak age of initial presentation being between 15 and 25. Second, symptoms are often vague and labs may be normal. And third, the incidence of extra-intestinal manifestations is about 25 to 35%. Definitely check out that issue, as it has a lot more to offer than that 10-second synopsis. Next, let's talk cutting edge in the IBD world. As far as biomarkers go, none are ready for prime time. Anti-E. coli outer membrane porin antibody, anti-Saccharomyces cervicii antibody, and P-ANCA are all highly specific but not sensitive for IBD. There are also fecal biomarkers that are being tested, but they are similarly not ready for routine use. However, they may prove to be useful in the future, so stay tuned. Finally, let's talk about disposition. There's no easy answer here, and there are no simple decision rules to apply. Some patients may be discharged, while other patients may require admission to an intensive care unit. If a patient is discharged, this decision should be made in conjunction with the patient and his or her gastroenterologist or PCP to facilitate both follow-up and optimal outpatient therapies. Pretty sure we've hammered this one home today, but this has to be an interdisciplinary decision, often with multiple teams. Let's wrap up this episode with some of the key points from this month's issue. IBD is likely underdiagnosed and should be included in a differential for any patient with recurrent abdominal pain. Consider it especially in teens and young adults in whom it is frequently diagnosed. There are many extra-intestinal manifestations of IBD which are both common and frequently precede the diagnosis. Some of the most important extra-intestinal manifestations of IBD include an increased risk of nephrolithiasis, gallbladder disease, osteoporosis, osteopenia, and thromboembolic disease, specifically DVTs, PE, ischemic heart disease, and mesenteric ischemia. Some of the most important extra-intestinal manifestations of IBD include an increased risk of nephrolithiasis, gallbladder disease, osteoporosis, osteopenia, and thromboembolic disease, specifically DVTs, PE, ischemic heart disease, and mesenteric ischemia. In a patient presenting with IBD, basic labs including a CBC, CMP, and lipase are all indicated. A lactic acid, blood cultures, and stool studies should also be considered in those with concern for severe illness. The role of ESR and CRP is not clearly defined, though backed by class 2 evidence. CRP is more sensitive and correlates better with disease activity in patients with Crohn's disease. Normal values do not rule out disease. Image judiciously to avoid needlessly increasing lifetime dose of ionizing radiation. Consider ultrasound for abscess and MRI when available and feasible. In seriously ill patients, an immediate abdominal radiograph is useful in those with concern for perforation or toxic megacolon. Acute flares should be treated with IV fluids and steroids. A fever may accompany an acute flare as part of the expected inflammatory response and does not necessarily indicate a need for antibiotics. Surgical consultation will be required for patients with bowel obstructions, toxic megacolon, bowel perforation, intra-abdominal abscesses, and hemorrhage. Assess your patient's disease phenotype, which may aid in diagnosis as well as dictate what complications they're at risk for. The role for immunomodulators is greatly expanding. As medicines become more powerful, their side effect profiles also expand. Involve the patient's gastroenterologist and primary care doctor to help aid disposition and treatment decisions. IBD has dramatic psychosocial effects, which are not to be ignored. 25% of teens with IBD are depressed. In all IBD patients, the rate of anxiety and depression is about 20%. Females may suffer from impaired body image and sexuality, ulcered menstruation, and reduced fertility. Make sure to empower them with resources like IBDU.org and CCFA.org. So that wraps up the November 2017 episode of Amplify. 
Make sure to follow the EB Medicine Twitter handle at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. And before you forget, head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E1117 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a minute or two to breeze through the 10 questions. And for all our resident listeners out there who don't need CME, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started today. Talk to you guys next month.